Do you want to know who's the hottest president? Doesn't make you glow to learn sick cabello. reward you will learn if you spend some time with us we all dress like your dad and wear glasses we assure you it's not that bad with three dudes wearing glasses my name is Gus, and I am wearing a green Dartmouth fencing jacket, despite the fact that I do not fence at Dartmouth. My name is Mitchell, and I'm wearing that one flannel shirt that Evan and I both own. And my name's Evan, and I'm not wearing that flannel shirt. I'm wearing a tan cardigan. And we are three dudes wearing plaid. Every week on this show, we learn something brand new. The only catch is we have no idea what we're going to be learning about yet. Right before the episode started, Mitchell informed us that he is zonked out of his bean. Yeah. Explain that phrase. I'd like to move into the interview portion of this show, where you explain why and how your bean has been zonked. Well, sure. You see, 30 years ago, when I began concocting that phrase in the jungles of Borneo. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just a little fried. It's partway through the term and midterms are a thing. Uh, I'm just I'm just a little I'm just a little fried and so I thought about the brain as like a like a bean and I there were no English words that readily came to my disposal that would be appropriate, so I went with the onomatopoeic. Automatopoetic, I think. The onomatopoetic zonk, as opposed to zoinked, because that's too Scooby-Doo, and I'm not, I'm not feeling the Scooby-Doo vibe. No, no, the zonk wasn't I had, what I had the problem with. I had the problem with bean, but now that you've oh. explained the bean, I accept the bean as a metaphor for the brain. Accept the bean into your heart. Well, into your brain. Yeah, I don't know where I got it from. It's I've definitely heard it somewhere. It's not something I came up with, but the brain is not, not like a bean in any way except like, I guess... What's with the with the letters orthographically? They're not dissimilar in general shape. Yeah, the brain is vaguely bean shaped when viewed from the side. Yeah. Mm. I accept the bean is vaguely big. Unless you take into account the brain stem, in which case it's sort of like a bean on a toothpick. Ah, yes. My my that's <laughs> my cheap model for the science fair of the human brain. You just get a little pinto bean and you put it on a toothpick. <laughs> it's like there we go. I was picturing, like, the worst cocktail party appetizer ever. <laughs> Just a bean? Just beans on toothpicks, nothing else. Singular bean on one toothpick. But, like, a whole tray of them? As someone who doesn't really like beans, that would be my nightmare. Yeah, just just raw beans. Well, I'm, no, I'm picturing cooked beans. Oh. Because okay. you shouldn't bite into a raw bean. Evan, are you not a are you not a you not a bean fan? Maybe my most cancelable opinion, but I find beans incredibly boring. Hmm. I find that they rarely, if ever, add anything to a dish. We should probably cut this from the podcast. No, it's staying in. <laughs> you were gonna get taken down. I don't dislike them. I just am incredibly, incredibly ambivalent toward beans. If it helps, Evan, I don't think anybody's going to be serving single beans on skewers <laughs> at the next cocktail party you attend. 
I mean, there's no parties anyway nowadays, so. No, no, That's no. true. Although I feel like maybe when the pandemic is over, we're going to yeet ourselves right back into a new Roaring Twenties because we're so excited to see people again, and we're going to have just the most wild, bonkers parties. With so many beans at them. The most flavorful beans. <laughs> just for you, Evan. Is there like a technical definition of a cocktail party, or is it literally just any party at which mixed drinks are served? Because that opens up what a cocktail party is by a wide margin. Well, Gus, according to Wikipedia, which is... Say the thing. Say the catchphrase. Well, funny you should ask, because according to Wikipedia, a cocktail party is, and I quote, a party at which cocktails are served. All right, end of episode. (laughs) (laughs) It goes on to say that it's sometimes called a cocktail reception and a cocktail hour, which has a separate Wikipedia page, is sometimes used by managers of hotels and restaurants as a means of attracting bar patrons between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Okay, so like a happy hour. Yep. This Wikipedia page is quite short, which is odd. Usually we find one that has many subsections. But all we've got is is what whores d'orves are. What are whores d'orves? Oh, God, <laughs> I'm gonna. I am going to fight both of you guys. Whores d'orves. No, we have to get the full pronunciation spectrum. Whores d'orves are small dishes served before meals in European cuisine, and they're quite tasty, like a bean on a stick. <laughs> the worst whore d'orve. God, I, oh, I know you guys know it's hors d'oeuvre. Yes. You're going to have to fucking deal with this. <laughs> yes, I do. Fuck. There's also a T.S. Eliot play called The Cocktail Party. Okay. Which are based on the play. It just says elements of the play are based on Alcestis, the Euripides play. Huh. All right. And, and I don't know anything about that. but I know um, a lot about that, but I don't think it's super relevant here. No. There is a party for people who are on the rocks in their marriage, and then there's a weird... Huh. On the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's capitalized a mysterious unidentified guest who is a psychiatrist, and then they need to face the realities of life, and then it ends with a better cocktail party. <laughs> Welcome to Play Reviews with Mitchell Radston. <laughs> if it sort of helps expand our idea of what a cocktail party is, St. Louis, Missouri mm. claims to have the first recorded cocktail party, which was held in 1917 in St. Louis. This article in stlouistoday.com goes over a lot about the house where the cocktail party was held, which is not at all what I'm interested in. Apparently, the cocktail party began at noon with some of the 50 attendees coming straight from church. It lasted for only one hour, after which dinner was served. And it lists some of the cocktails that were served. Highballs, Manhattans, Bronx cocktails, which are gin, dry and sweet vermouth, and orange juice. And clover leaves, which are gin, grenadine, lime juice, and egg white. Disgusting. Mm. Yeah, I, I know I know it makes it like creamy and foamy, but the idea of adding egg white to a drink still just yucks my yum. As and apparently, should. after that, quote, spring fling in 1917, the cocktail party became all the rage in St. Louis and other cities, the Wall Street Journal article said, adding that prohibition a few years later put a crimp in the emerging trend. <laughs> <laughs> that Wall Street Journal article in question is uh, is called St. Louis Party Central, and it's by Eric Felton, and it's from October 6th, 2007. And I landed on it despite the fact that I was at a site called MountRoseDrinks.com that says, according to the Huffington Post, and then brought me to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, paywalled. Love that. 
So apparently the the what came before the cocktail party or what inspired this was in September of 1890 when a woman named Mrs. Richard S. Dana introduced the concept of an eggnog party in the society resort of Lenox, Massachusetts. Parties that she threw kind of every autumn for many years. It was centered around a bowl of eggnog. I like eggnog, but gross, not in a bowl. And apparently this led to this woman, Mrs. Walsh, who in St. Louis invited 50 friends over to a mansion, one hour party, drinking and merriment, quote, called it a cocktail party. And as we've learned, even though it may not be in the spirit of what we have cocktail parties as now, it counts because cocktails were served. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're using the Wikipedia definition. I wish you always should. So this, of course, makes me wonder... How the hell do I throw a cocktail party? And lucky for me, Epicurious <laughs> has a page on a cocktail party guide for beginners. Oh, thank Ooh. goodness. So, in order to have a cocktail party, you must invite between six and 15 people. Wait, so that means the first cocktail party wasn't a cocktail party by Epicurious' definition? No. Because there were like 50 people there. That's not a cocktail party. Uh-uh. Because if there's more than 15 people, it will be, quote, too hard to manage. Okay, I think Epicurious is underestimating my managerial skills, but go on. <laughs> they recommend that you have enough for every guest to have three cocktails plus some wine and beer, if they so please. It recommends making all of your cocktails beforehand and then putting them in pitchers, which you then pour into little cocktail glasses to make your life easier. Oh, sure. Yeah. That does sound like it would make my life easier. It really does, doesn't it? And is that it? That's the end of their tips? Well, they suggest some uh, some nice little uh, whores dwarves that you could make. Whores dwarves. Very good. What are, what are their, their whores dwarves selection? We've got an herb marinated feta and olive, which sounds, sounds pretty good. good. Some cheese straws. Crudite. Crudite? Crudite. Just like veggies and dip, I think. Yeah, that's what crudites are. Not that I don't love hearing you guys talk about horse divorce, but yeah. um, the Wikipedia page for cocktail has a lengthy etymology section. Ooh. And I do not want to wait any longer to get into it. The origin of the word cocktail is disputed, unsurprisingly. It Originally, it was an adjective referring to a horse with sort of like a perky tail. I guess. Oh, no. It was customary to dock the tails of horses that were not thoroughbred, and they were called cocktailed horses, later simply cocktails. So the word was used to refer to horses for a long time before that. The first use of the word not referring to a horse is in the Morning Post in Gazetteer, 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 sure. Uh, in London, England, March 20th, 1798. Mr. Pitt, two petit verres of Louis de Venus, ditto one of Parfait Amour, ditto cocktail parentheses vulgarly called ginger that means fucking nothing to me but it's not <laughs> referring to a horse it's apparently referring to ginger and etymologist anatoly lieberman endorses as highly probable the theory advanced by another person whose last name is loftman i'm not finding their first name mm. anyway the theory goes that it was customary to dock non-thoroughbred horses' tails. They are called cocktail horses. By extension, the word cocktail was applied to a vulgar, ill-bred person raised above his station. Loftman concluded that a cocktail was an acceptable alcoholic drink, 
but diluted and thus not purebred and thus a thing raised above its station. Hence the highly appropriate slang word used earlier about inferior horses and sham gentlemen. Alternatively, cocktail historian David Wondrich speculates that cocktail is a reference to gingering, because apparently cocktail is a synonym for ginger. Gingering is a practice for perking up an old horse by means of a ginger suppository so that the animal can cock up its tail and be frisky. So maybe it's slang for a person who tries to rise above their station, and maybe it's slang for shoving ginger up a horse's ass. Either way, not something I want to drink. It's an interest. It's interesting that you bring up David David Wondrich, who has a phenomenal beard. Because I've been for the past several minutes reading it, an article on the the website severe.com. Oh, he does have a phenomenal beard. Hot damn! Indeed, and it's an exploration of like every single claim to who made the cocktail, who first made the cocktail. And this is a guy who, he's just kind of casually mentioning, he's, he's written many things about the history of alcohol and spirits and all sorts. At the end of it, it's the classic, like, it's impossible to know for certain, but we can throw some stuff out and here's my theory. And I don't want to say this is necessarily his theory because I haven't had the chance to pick apart the threads of this very in-depth analysis but a a promising one of the cocktail being used specifically as a drink is an item from a James Fenimore Cooper novel called The Spy, A Tale of the Neutral Ground, where in which a story set uh, in the no man's land of New York between the Continental Army and the British and the American Revolution, there's a lady oh. named, named Betty Flanagan who has a rough and tumble tavern, and Cooper characterizes her as <clears throat> the inventor of that beverage, which is so well known at the present hour to all the patriots who make a winter's march between New York City and Albany, and which is distinguished by the name of Cocktail. Although there may also be another canonical thing, which is an 1806 citation from the Hudson, New York Balance and Columbian Repository, which defines a cocktail as a mixture of spirits, sugar, water, and bitters. But it's very hard to tell. And he talks about going to New York Public Library. I just want people to read this article. It seems like a very cool article. It also seems like any of those explanations would have required it to be in sort of the general use before those things were published. Yeah. Right. Like, based on how he writes about it, it seems odd that James Fenimore Cooper could have coined cocktail as a word for a drink. Right. Uh, And part of the thing that is so difficult, I think, in in defining the etymology, which, by the way, we can justify this whole tangent by the fact that to define a cocktail party, you need to know what a cocktail is. Um, the difficulty comes from using the, the horse term and the like uneducated or, or, or stupid person term. Social climber. Yeah. Social climber. Sorry. Um, you, in that context being used to like satirize people and how it's really hard to pick apart things from like the 1800s that are doing that and not talking about the drink. It may be just like, you know, this is the theory I'm making up right on the spot. It might be, you know how we, we have drinks that are like a Manhattan or what's another drink name? An old fashioned? <laughs> a martini. <laughs> yes, of it. Uh, or, or, or a Gibson. We have drinks that are named after specific things. It may be that someone made a drink, a specific uh, uh, drink that was named after the cocktail, like the horse or the social climber. Hmm. And it just kind of generally became what a cocktail is. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. That is, I just mentioned the old-fashioned. 
that is what happened to the old fashioned, the initial definition of what a cocktail is that you mentioned, Mitchell, spirits, sugar, water, and bitters. Yes. Match the ingredients of an old fashioned. And it's possible that that cocktail got its name literally just to distinguish it from newer, more complicated cocktails later <laughs> on. You had said previously that part of holding a cocktail party is knowing what a cocktail is. Yes. Well, the International Bartenders Association okay. has a list of their official cocktails split up into three groups with official recipes, for this is each, exciting. which are used for the annual World Cocktail Competition. <laughs> <laughs> which i haven't had a chance to read more about but i'm intrigued by mm. and the three categories of cocktails are the unforgettables which include things like martini a daiquiri a manhattan the mm. like an old-fashioned there are contemporary classics and finally like, new era drinks new era like they're into crystals and shit yeah. <laughs> there is a list of like official cocktails that's awesome i have something to go along with that mm. which is arguably the first official cocktails oh the first publication of a bartender's guide which included cocktail recipes was in 1862 how to mix drinks or the bon vivant's companion by professor jerry thomas Ooh, yeah, jerry thomas professor is in quotes and i will tell you why it's because <laughs> jeremiah jerry professor jerry p thomas was the coolest human being who ever existed actually <laughs> a bold claim he was born in 1830 he died in 1885 he is considered the father of american mixology and his wikipedia page image is a drawing of him mixing his signature drink, the Blue Blazer, in which he is pouring flaming alcohol back and forth between two cups. Oh my god. He wrote multiple bartender's guides. He was an incredibly popular bartender who, like, everybody knew. When he was bartending at the Occidental Hotel in San Francisco, he was earning $100 a week, which at the time was more than the vice president of the United States. <laughs> oh my god. And he, like, lost all his money in Wall Street speculation towards the end of his life and had had to like sell his saloon he just he lived the most ridiculously wild life when he lived in new york city he was apparently quote a flashy dresser who was fond of kid gloves and his gold parisian watch he enjoyed going to bare knuckle prize fights and was an art collector and also had a side interest in gourds as <laughs> <laughs> president of the gourd club after producing the largest <laughs> specimen God damn, Professor Jerry Thomas. How are you so cool? He also, yeah, he wasn't a professor. He was just super creative and showy with his drinks and established the image of the bartender as a creative professional. As such, he was often nicknamed Professor Jerry Thomas. And he looks like the archetypal, like this this one drawing of him where he's got kind of like no hair, but he's got facial hair and he's wearing like the vest with the tie. He looks like the bartender. He yeah. does in like ye old timey saloon. Yeah. yeah. Like there's there's obviously been changes through the years. Of, like you think like an old west bartender looks different than like a New York bartender. But when you think of old timey bartender, this is it's Jerry Thomas all the way down. Wait, I'm sorry. He also worked as a gold prospector. Hell yes. <laughs> oh, never mind. He's not that cool. He also worked as a minstrel show manager. Oh. Everybody from the past is problematic, kids, and we can still appreciate their legacy and be interested in their history while also acknowledging that they were not good people. Indeed. He learned bartending in New Haven, Connecticut. Hey, yo! Probably Hometown where he, hero, apparently. It's where he got his professorship at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> 
two two notes on the International Bartenders Association that I feel like we can't let them just slide by. First of all, <laughs> contemporary classics is a meaningless term, and I will fight anyone on that. Oh, agreed. You could have things that are emerging classics or likely to become classics, but they can't be classics if they are contemporary. Maybe it means they're contemporaries of each other. Oh, you know what? Too might be too quick to judge here. Second of all, they're uh, okay. This is just a poster for their meeting in 1965, but it's just like the most basic, boring ass looking glass drawing. Second or third, rather, they were founded in 1951 in the saloon of the Grand Hotel in Torquay, England. And it doesn't say the story of how they were founded, but it definitely was just like two bartenders of like, hey, why don't we have ourselves a little competition? Oh, sorry, they were they were British. Hello, mate. How about we have ourselves a competition then? I bet I can bartend better than you. Oh, I don't think that's true, mate. Let's have a competition. We've got to make an association. It's a very British thing to do, make an association. I guess so. I am looking at their official website, and they don't have any more information on how they formed on that than they do on the Wikipedia page. Great. They do have recipes for every single one of their uh, cocktails, though, if you ever want to learn how to make an IBA quality cocktail. Maybe I will. I'm surprised that, that Epicurious doesn't mention them. I mean, there's probably websites that they want to push, but like... I've never heard of this group, and if they know the way to make co- to make beverages, when I am of drinking and partying age, I will definitely make beverages from their specifications. <laughs> that you could not have said that in a more suspicious tone of voice. Moving on. <laughs> so there is another claim to the inventor of the cocktail party. Oh boy! That is not St. Louis. It is the novelist Alec Waugh, or Woe, or Wah. Or Wagach. Claimed that he invented the cocktail party by serving a rum swizzle to astonished friends who thought they had come for tea at his flat in the spring of 1924. So that's definitely after the St. Louis claim, but also interesting that he just fucking tricked his friends into a cocktail party? <laughs> that's that's amazing. Just like surprise, alcohol. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. There's an Esquire article mm. called They Laughed When I Invented the Cocktail Party, published on July 1st, 1974 by Alec Waugh. Oh my god. It is my belief and boast that I invented the London Cocktail Party in April 1924. And how is that different from a non-London cocktail party? Well, apparently a London cocktail party involves deception. Hmm. One does not on a weekday want to be faced with so much food so soon after lunch. Anyhow, tea parties were over at six o'clock. I dilated on this topic one evening to C.R.W. Nevinson, the painter, and his wife, Kathleen. What one needs, I said, is some kind of a party that starts at half past five, that lasts 90 minutes at which alcohol is served, but not much food. What kind of alcohol? Kathleen asked. (laughs) Something short, not whiskeys and sodas, sherry or Madeira. Why not a cocktail? Why not? The idea appealed to the Nevinsons. Oh my god. (laughs) A week later, the invitations were in the post. Oh my god. I will say, this article that Alec Wall wrote leaves out the deception part. Apparently, the invitations announced that the Nevinsons would be at home in their studio and that alcoholic beverages would be in supply. So... It's not clear if the deception actually occurred. This is this is difficult, and I don't want to get too bogged down in etymology debate, but I will point out, like, a lot of times when you see these and it's disputed, it's because it's you've got two classic types here of, like, the guy who claims to have invented it and has written a lot saying that he invented it, 
and like written articles about it himself and has personal anecdotes that can't really be confirmed. And then the other type of like the St. Louis article saying, hey, it was someone from St. Louis. Check it out. We're an awesome town. It's like the hometown versus the one writer guy. And it's it's probably never going to be figured out who had the first cocktail party. I mean, no, certainly not. But if you define the St. Louis party as a cocktail party, theirs came first because that was in 1917. Indeed. What is interesting is as I'm on a – I'm looking at a, a like Google Books preview for a book called Movers and Shakers, A Chronology of Words That Shaped Our Age by John Aito. That is where I got the – first quote about Alec Waugh. It, it notes right after that that deception quote that the, the cocktail names of Gibson, Gimlet, and Sidecar, which are all 1928-1930 period, date from around this time. Is it more plausible that one guy's party that was a surprise, like inspired more people to have them and then diversified cocktails versus someone who had like a party in St. Louis 13 years earlier? Mm. Yeah, it's hard to say. I do just want to close us out with the last line of Alec Waugh's Esquire article, because Mm. it's, I'm sure he was an interesting and cool fellow, but also it's one of the most pretentious fucking things I've ever heard in my life. Oof. He may well be right, but I have, I trust, reason for maintaining that in the literary bohemian circle I did frequent in London, I gave the first cocktail party. Shut up, Alec. Shut up. Alec. I choose to reject Alex Waugh's insistence that he's a cocktail party just because he's a pompous ass. Yeah, I'm I'm fully on the St. Louis crowd also because I really love the idea of most of the people at the first cocktail party showing up directly from church. Wait, he died on my birthday. Oh shit, are you secretly like the reincarnation of Alec Waugh? God, I hope not. <laughs> I'm like a werewolf, but I turn into Alec Waugh. <laughs> Oh no, you're a wall wolf. <laughs> I'm a wall oh, I hate that. All right, well, here's a question. What have we learned today? A cocktail party, according to Wikipedia, is a party at which cocktails are served. Just that. That's it. But according to Epicurious, <laughs> it must have between 6 and 15 people to be technically a cocktail party. Which is odd, because St. Louis claims that a person who lived in St. Louis held the first cocktail party in 1917, at which there were around 50 guests, and basic cocktails were served, making it by definition a cocktail party. There's a considerable murkiness to where both the word cocktail and cocktail party came from. There was a gentleman named Alec Waugh, who was a British uh, novelist who claims to have been done the first cocktail party when he uh, surprised his friends with alcohol instead of tea after church. <laughs> I don't think Alec Law's friends were coming from church. Oh, sorry. My mistake. As Mitchell had hinted, there is significant debate about the etymology of cocktail. It may come from the practice of uh, cocking the tails of, docking the tails of horses that were not thoroughbred. It may also have come to the fact that the term cocktail referred to a social climber or said horse. It may also come from the practice of uh, a ginger suppository used in the tales of uh, horses who were less than excited. Oh, you could have phrased that any other way. But I did The International Bartenders Association is a thing, and they have official recipes on their website for all different types of cocktails, including contemporary classics, which as a distinction does not necessarily make a ton of sense, but the recipes are official and we might try them once all three of us are of legal age. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Jerry Thomas, uh, one of a really, really cool dude, except for the fact that he did minstrel shows, but he was like the archetypal bartender and it's such a profound impact upon his community. Like we all, when you think of a bartender, that's basically what he is. 
and also there were just obituaries all over the place when he died because he made such a great impression of being a cool dude who made a ton of cool cocktails. And also at a certain point in his career, he was making more money than the literal vice president because he was so popular. <laughs> anyway, this has been fun. I've loved learning about cocktails. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. If you hate the show, please share it with an enemy. And either way, follow us on Instagram at 3DWPcast. I'm Gus. I'm Mitchell. And I'm Evan. And this has been Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. Have a great day. Next time on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. All right, Mitchell, take it away with your shark ASMR. I'm just, I'm so sad. Hold on. You, you gotta, my I dude. Can't, I can't while you guys watch. Hey there. Looks like you're in that, uh, that shark cage. Let me just swim on in. That's right. I'm a shark, and you're a you're a deep sea underwater diver. Wow, isn't this something? I'm kind of curious why you're stuck in that cage. So I'm gonna I'm maybe just gonna chomp on it a little bit. Don't mind me. Oh wow, that cage is inedible. Oh wait, what's that? Is that is that you releasing oxygen out of your your PC? Sorry, was that noise supposed to be oxygen? Find out next week on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. Mm-hmm.